Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. Let's get to it. Uh, Not a lot of news to share this week, except that it's been been an amusing week. Um, So we'll just get straight into the story here. Uh, Continuing on with... The next two chapters of Outdweller, Glimmer Veil Chronicles number two, written by me, read by Kevin Sapp, who is awesome, pretty awesome. Okay, so sit back and enjoy. I'll talk to you on the flip side. Seven. Death's Door. Constable! A woman's high-pitched scream stopped Julian in his tracks. He was walking down Water Street, one of the three imaginatively named main roads that led down to the docks from Main Street, heading toward the Covington Brothers' warehouse in his normal mid-morning round of the various businesses in town. Julian had just been thinking it was well past time Radrick took a turn at this particular check. The warehouse was... fragrant, from the multitudes of fish that had been processed here over the years. But for one reason or another, he always begged off on it. And so it was not without a certain sense of relief that Julian turned around to face the woman calling for him. The relief faded as soon as he saw the woman sprinting down the road toward him. She wore a plain yellow dress, with a white sash around her waist that was embroidered with yellow, blue, and pink flowers, and simple white shoes, almost slippers. Her graying hair was done up in a bun atop her head, and she wore no makeup. Julian recognized her at once. Helena, Beverly the teacher's sister. She was old for his taste, but Julian had to admit she had kept herself up well through the years. Like her sister, she was a spinster and there were all sorts of rumors around town about her. About both of them. The sorts of rumors that were primarily spoken by women in half-whispers where they imagined even men could not hear them. Of course, the rumors got around anyway. Julian did his best to pay them no heed, but he still caught himself wondering sometimes. This was not one of those times. The look on Helena's face horrified beyond reason, desperately hopeful and yet also full of despair, would have sent any such frivolous thoughts from his mind, even if her tone had not. Helena slid to a stop in front of him, gasping for air for a moment. Julian put a hand on her shoulder to steady her. What's wrong? Beverly, Helena gasped. She's... She gasped again, then clapped her hand to her mouth as though suddenly realizing what she was about to say. The desperation and fear on her face gave way to grief and loss so profound that it looked as though it shattered everything else in her, and she let out a little wail. Her knees buckled, and Julian had to move quickly to catch her before she hit the ground. The little wail became a long and guttural scream of denial, loss, bitterness, pain. She clung to him like a drowning man clinging to a scrap of wood, and shivered, her chest heaving as her scream gave way to sobs then full-on weeping that seemed as though it would never end. Julian's heart sank to the ground at his feet. He did not need to ask what had happened. It was obvious. Helena's sister was dead. He held her close, letting her cry. 
two deaths in less than a week. This was not good. Beverly and Helena lived in a small flat atop a house near the eastern edge of town, not too far from the final battle between Lyttelton and Eisenhof's band of brigands earlier this year. The building was far enough into town that Julian and Radrick had not imposed on the landlord to erect scaffolding for archers, or to erect a barricade alongside his house, but the landlord nonetheless tried, once or twice, to boast of his proximity to the fight over a pint or two of ale. But only once or twice. The glares of the men who had actually been there, and the names of the men who had fallen, spoken by his neighbors, silenced his words better than any threat could have. The house was stoutly built and not overly pretty, but then it did not have to be. The stairs up to the flat were sturdy, though uncovered, so the sisters had to endure the elements on their way up and down from their home, even in the depths of winter, which in Glimmervale could be bitter indeed. As Julian tramped up the stairs, he glanced behind at Helena, who waited on the street below with haunted, sunken eyes that were red from tears. His heart went out to her, and not just for her loss. A woman alone in the world faced a challenging life. It would have been difficult enough with her sister by her side. But now... He shook his head. It's just not right, he murmured. Radric, leading the way up the stairs, nodded concurrence. Is it ever? Julian had no answer to that. The stairs doubled back upon themselves and ended at a simple wooden doorway that jutted out from the peaked roof of the building, as though daring the winter snow to cause it trouble. A foul odor permeated the landing the smell of rotting meat and corruption. It took a moment for Radric to get the key to work in the lock. The landlord had apparently not seen to any maintenance on the lock in some time. Although, if there were any things that required attention, the lock becoming more difficult to open would likely rate near the last on the list. Finally, Radric got the door open, and the stench hit them like a jab from a pugilist. It was bad enough with the door closed. Now that it was open... Julian almost gagged at the smell. This was going to be bad. Radric looked no more eager than Julian felt. They shared a resigned look, then stepped inside. The flat was more spacious than Julian expected from looking at the building from the outside. A good-sized living area, with a serviceable kitchen nook off to the left, greeted them as they entered. A pair of closed doors, nearly identical in their dark-stained wood, stood opposite the entrance, no doubt leading to the sisters' bedrooms. The living area was simply furnished with a stout wooden table in the middle and a pair of chairs toward the front of the house, where a broad window framed by drapes that were embroidered with cheery forest scenes involving horses and other small animals strutting through the trees let in greater than average amounts of light from the outside. A small bookshelf stood along the far wall, about two-thirds of the way filled with tomes of various sorts, and the kitchen was well stocked with utensils and foodstuffs. It was warmly decorated, with rugs on the floors and paintings, many obviously from children's hands, all over the walls. The sisters loved children, and it showed. Strange that neither chose to have any of their own. It was a good home. Neat, warm, with all the charm and appeal of a well-lived-in place that oozed good feelings and simple contentment. As long as you did not look at what was on the table. Beverly had not been dead for very long but already the day's heat had crept up into the flat and things had begun to go rancid. Not to mention the things that happened to a body soon after its death. Julian had seen it on a dozen or more battlefields, the body's muscles letting go once its spirit had left, letting its filth fall where it may. There was never dignity in death, 
but some people should not be degraded like that. Beverly was one of those. She had given her whole life to the children of Lyttelton. If the normal after-death loosening of the bowels was all that had befallen her, it would have been bad enough. But this... God's above, Radric breathed, his face ashen and his tone matching it, if a man's tone could be said to have a color. It's just like with Balin. Julian nodded his head mutely, struggling to take it all in. The table was strewn with body parts, little bits and pieces here and there, some recognizable as a hand or part of a leg, but many of them too savage to tell. But just like with the woodsman, the head was clearly gone, missing from the rest entirely. It rested upon the curved outlet of the small wood-fired stove that dominated the kitchen area, nestled onto a bend in the pipe not far from where it ran out, through the building's roof. Beverly wore almost exactly the same expression Balin had. Eyes locked wide open in a horrified stare, her mouth wide as though trying to scream, and her expression passed terror to a fear so primal that it defied immediate description. Bugger me, Julian managed, finally. Radric did not respond. His initial shock had faded, and he was beginning to look around with more of his normal manner, his face set in a stern mask. This was bad. Julian had thought that already, but it was more true than he figured he knew. And one thing was certain. This was not the work of an animal. Radric had taken the words right out of his mouth. Julian nodded agreement. Animal that could do this would not have made it into town without anyone noticing. He took a deep breath through his mouth, so as to avoid as much of the stench as he could. Which means... Radric finished the thought. Whoever did this also killed Balin. He turned and looked gravely at Julian, his blue eyes seeming two or three shades darker than normal in the grisly room. We're looking for a man. Julian nodded agreement, though he could not imagine the kind of man who would do something like this. 8. Formalities Mayor Brimley's scowl seemed to take up his entire face. He sat behind his massive wooden desk in his office on the upper floor of City Hall, though City was perhaps a bit of a stretch, and looked at Julian and Radric through narrowed eyes that gleamed with concern. So did the sweat that ran down his brow and along the line of his chin, to pool at its tip before dropping with a silent splat onto the blotter that lay atop his desk. The mayor was somewhat more than plump. As usual, he wore his badge of office, a golden fish jumping out of the water, prominently on the left breast of his summer jacket. Today, the jacket was off-white, just the slightest shade of yellow, with a white-collared shirt beneath. Julian had not seen his leggings yet, but no doubt his attire was perfectly matched. His wife always saw to that. Julian had no desire for a wife like that. He would not dream of dictating a lady's choice of attire, as long as it lay within the bounds of decency. Why should a lady make such demands of him, or any man? Stupid question right there. Are you sure it's the same thing as Balin? Radric kept his face smooth, neutral, and respectful, but Julian knew it was only with difficulty. The mayor could be trying at the best of times, but when things got stressful, he was not the most steady of individuals. Completely, Radric replied. The bodies were arranged almost identically. Mayor Brimley blew out a long exultation and turned in his chair. It was set on a pivot, a nicely made contraption, to look out the window behind his desk, 
scowling. People are not going to take this well. Of course not. Though not universally well-respected, women who seemed to spurn even the idea of marriage stood out and were not well-regarded by some. Beverly was at least appreciated for the services she provided to the town's children. Or at least that portion of the town's children that she had the time to take under her wing, and whose parents were able to meet her price. Come to think of it, there were likely some people in town, more than a few, who may have held a grudge against poor Beverly and her sister for just that reason. But that was not what the mayor was getting at. He looked back at the two of them. I want this kept quiet. Julian blinked and traded a glance with Raedric. That will be... difficult, Raedric said. Plenty of people know Beverly is dead already. Mayor Brimley snorted softly and waved a dismissive hand. I don't mean the fact that she's dead. He leaned forward, his face grim. I mean how she died, and how it compares with Balin. If people start putting two and two together, we'll have neighbor suspicious of neighbor. Before you know it, folks will start accusing each other for all to hear. Then they'll be fighting. He shook his head. We need to avoid that. I doubt it'll come to that, Julian said. Mayor Brimley snorted more loudly and scowled at him. You've not been here that long. Trust me, this place will go up like a haystack if we let it. Julian frowned. He was not so sure about Mayor Brimley's appraisal there. The people of Lytleton could have broken, fractured, when Eisenhoff's brigands put the pressure on, but instead, men went against their employer's wishes to fight alongside he and Raedric. The populace at large hunkered down and helped out as best they could, and the town in general pulled together. But that was against an external existential threat. How well would they stick together if it had been one of their own working against the rest of them? Suddenly, the mayor's concern did not seem quite so far-fetched. Damn it. Radric frowned as well, and Julian could tell he was thinking along the same lines. Slowly, he nodded to the mayor, conceding the point. I'll talk with the people who have seen the body so far. It was only Helena, their landlord, and the priest's assistants. I think I can convince them to keep quiet. Mayor Brimley nodded, his expression grave. I hope so. A knock on the door to the mayor's office interrupted the rest of his words. Mayor Brimley cocked his head at the door for a second, as though considering whether to answer. Then his eyes flicked over to the clock that rested on a shelf between two windows on the wall facing Main Street, and he blanched. Uh, come! The door swung halfway open, and the mayor's secretary, a slight woman in her early middle years who wore her red-blonde hair short, barely clearing her ears and back, stuck her head in. Magister Havistad here to see you, Master Mayor. Mayor Brimley grunted and shoved himself to his feet. Uh, send him in, Frida, he said as he rose. Julian and Raedric stood with him. Julian could not help but watch as the door swung open fully, and Lauren strode confidently into the room. He was dressed more formally this day, in flowing robes that reached his feet, and were a blue so dark they could almost be mistaken for black. A golden medallion hung around his neck, supporting the symbol of the magisterium on his chest. It seemed to glow with an internal light. Neat trick. Lauren ignored the two lawmen as he entered, his gaze instead fixed completely on the mayor. He strode to the front of Mayor Brimley's desk with a smooth, confident gait that seemed more fitting for a ballroom than a small office, and never mind the staff in his right hand, then inclined his head in greeting. Master Mayor, it is a pleasure, he said in a formal, courtly tone. Mayor Brimley perked up at Lauren's demeanor. By the time the mage had finished greeting him, the mayor's chest puffed out and he almost seemed to preen. 
He always was one to be impressed with a good show. The pleasure is mine, Magister Havisted, Mayor Brimley replied as he made a half-bow from his waist in response to Lauren's greeting. Lytleton is honored to welcome an esteemed member of the Magisterium to our midst. Lauren merely smiled, the kind of smile that said he was accepting a just supplication from one inferior to himself. It set Julian's teeth on edge. I believe you have met our constables already, Mayor Brimley said, gesturing to Julian, then to Radric. Lauren cast only the briefest of glances at Julian, and he thought he saw the mage's lips twist in the tiniest of smirks there for a second, before turning his attention upon Radric. He, Lauren studied intently for a brief moment, and Julian got the impression he had taken Radric's measure completely before Lauren smiled and made the slightest of nods toward him. I have already met Constable Hinderbrook, he said, but I am pleased to make your acquaintance. One eyebrow quirked upward, questioningly. Radric Bolletier. Radric held his hand out, and for a second Julian thought Lauren was not going to take it. Then he clasped hands with Radric in the way a soldier greets a man he has fought beside. Radric's eyebrows quirked upward in surprise, but he returned the shake in a like manner. A pleasure, Constable Bolletier, Lauren said. His eyes flickered downward quickly. It is most unusual for a man of your heritage to carry a Tairashi blade. Julian blinked in surprise, and his gaze shifted unconsciously to the sword that hung from Radric's left hip. Slightly curved, with a hand-and-a-half hilt, it was a far cry from the saber he used to wield. Longer, heavier, and far more elegant, at least to Julian's eyes. It had belonged to Salam, a citizen of Lydleton, who, like them, had come here from elsewhere. Salam died protecting the town from Eisenhof's brigands, and he had bequeathed the blade to Radric. It was some sort of family heirloom, but Radric had never explained its significance fully, and Julian had not pushed. Radric and Salam had fought together, forged a sort of friendship together, and that was not something that Julian felt comfortable shoving his nose into. That said, he had never heard Salam say where he came from. If he was Tyrashi, come to think of it, Julian still had no idea where Tyrash was. He had never gone back to Melanie to find out. Radric cleared his throat, his left hand coming to rest on the hilt of his sword almost unconsciously. A gift from a friend, he said, simply. Lauren's eyebrows lifted high onto his forehead for a second. A very generous gift. His eyes never left the sword. His tongue flicked across his teeth as though tasting something sweet, and Julian got a distinct sense of avarice from the man. Unless I miss my guess, that is Ferelio's workmanship. Radric blinked, confused, but Julian beat him to the question. Who? The mage looked back at him, and truly did smirk this time. Tell me you've not heard of Ferelio. He was one of the greatest swordsmiths of the last half-millennium. He shook his head slightly, then turned back to Radric. May I see the blade? Radric hesitated, his expression doubtful. Come now, I only wish to see if his mark is upon it. His tone and expression shouted that Radric would be beyond silly to refuse the request. Radric glanced from Lauren to Julian, who shrugged. What could it hurt? Then, with the soft sound of metal dragging against hardened leather, Radric pulled the sword out and held it upright between himself and Lauren, turned so that the mage could see the flat of the blade. Julian had seen the sword many times, but its elegance and beauty never ceased to amaze him. The blade was curved and honed to a razor edge on the entire convex side, 
as well as on the last third of the concave, so its wielder could cut with a backswing, almost as easily as with a front. That was not so terribly unusual. Julian had seen one or two blades of similar design. What set Selim's, Radric's, sword apart were the intricate engravings on the flat of the blade. Running the entire length of the blade, except along the cutting surfaces, they interlocked in a construct of artistry that rivaled anything Julian had ever seen. The sword's effect on Lauren was impressive, well beyond what Julian would have expected. The mage's eyes widened, and his breath caught in his throat. He stood speechless for a full minute as his eyes traced the engravings on the blade, his expression clearly that of a man who cannot believe what he is seeing. He reached out as if to touch it. Radric, frowning slightly, pulled the sword away and said, Careful, Magister. It's very sharp. Then he resheathed it with a single, smoothly practiced movement. Lauren blinked, then flashed a rueful smile and chuckled softly. Of course. He drew a deep breath and inclined his head toward Radric, a bit more deeply this time. That is a princely gift, Constable Baratir. I would be sure to keep a close eye on it were I you. He quirked an eyebrow upward slightly, then turned to face Mayor Brimley fully, who stood looking more than a little confused. And now then, Master Mayor, I believe we have business to discuss. Mayor Brimley nodded, wiping the confusion from his face with practiced ease and replacing it with an ingratiating smile. Yes, of course. He glanced at Radric, then Julian. Thank you, gentlemen. The dismissal was plain. Radric inclined his head to the mayor. Master Mayor? he said, then nodded to Lauren again. Magister? The mage returned the nod peremptorily, though his eyes flicked back to Radric's sword again, ever so briefly. Julian said his farewells quickly, then followed his friend from the office and pulled the mayor's heavy wooden door shut behind them. Well, he said, that was interesting. Radric smirked slightly and made a little shrug, but Julian could see the wheels turning behind his eyes. Lauren knew something about his newly acquired sword something Radric did not, and it was going to eat away at him until he figured it out. Well, for what it's worth, I think swords are cool, too, uh, which is part of the reason why I do some sword and sorcery stories so often, I guess. Um, other than that, no real authorly insight to add on this one at this point. Uh, the plot continues and thickens, and uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. Uh, if you come back next week... You can hear more, or you can go by the website, ssnstorytelling.com or michaelkingswood.com. There's a link that leads you to the store, and you can get the book there from me uh, in any format you like, and I get decent money for that. You can also get it through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo and Google Play and iBooks and every other place. I get less money there. And uh, the long term... <laughs> business goal is to eventually do all business strictly through my site um with the other sites just being entry points that people can learn about me from uh but really would like to have everybody come straight to me in general uh a because make more money that way b make a little community action and c um because now, sooner or later, you're going to set the foot wrong with somebody who's going to say, hey, you need to get rid of that person because I don't like him. And all these people will be probably potential to uh, stop business with you. You know, tortious interference laws and things like that, notwithstanding. Um, you kind of don't want to take the uh, 
don't, don't want to expose yourself to that kind of risk. So the goal is to have all you people who like what I do come to my site, not theirs. Um, realistically, I understand a very small portion of you people will actually do that since there's entrained reasons that people like going to these other places. But that's the goal. Anyway, go there, buy books. There's other books than these, too, that you can get. Um, or, you know, just spread uh, the word about the podcast and the books and that you like them and that we're doing cool stuff to all your pals and come back next week and we'll find out the next two chapters. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>